This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you, talking about sex and health and relationships and life and love and all of those stressors that we have in our life that may impact our health, our mental health, our emotional health, our physical health. And this subject is going to affect your physical health. It can also affect your sexual health. We're going to be talking about what we in the industry, and that's the health industry, for those of you who are thinking something different, uh, we call this triple A, abdominal aortic aneurysm. An aneurysm is an abnormal area of localized widening of a blood vessel. The aorta bulges at the site of an aneurysm, just like a weak spot on a worn tire. Aortic aneurysms are typically spindle-shaped, and they involve the aorta below the arteries to the kidneys. And the most common cause of an aneurysm, this won't surprise you, arteriosclerosis, and smoking is a major risk factor for arterial sclerosis. Abdominal aortic aneurysms, or as I like to say, triple A's, often do not cause symptoms. If they do, they may cause deep, like a boring down pain in the lower back or the flank area. Prominal abdominal pulsations may be present in a number of patients. And typically x-rays of the abdomen and other radiological testing including ultrasound, CTs, MRIs, may be used in diagnosing and monitoring the aneurysm if it's not a candidate or you're not a candidate for repair immediately. Rupture of an aortic aneurysm is a catastrophe. It is catastrophic. And repair of the aneurysm can be done by surgery or endovascular stenting. So putting a stent in. And I want to say it's important that you are healthy for surgery So if you are obese, you will need to take uh, some weight off, Uh, diabetes. There are a number of risk factors that will increase negative outcomes uh, or increase post-operative complications for you. So that's also why it's, it's good to stay in shape. It's good to be trim. It's good to be physically fit. These things are important in life. Uh, So uh, I've described to you what an aortic aneurysm is. They can develop anywhere along the length of the aorta, but the majority are located in the abdominal aorta. Aorta, my Boston accent coming out there. Most of the abdominal aneurysms are located below the level of the renal arteries, the vessels that provide blood to the kidneys. Abdominal aortic aneurysms can can extend into the iliac arteries. So some of the symptoms of an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Most triple A's produce no symptoms. In other words, they are asymptomatic and they may be discovered incidentally when an imaging test of the abdomen or a CT or an ultrasound is performed. Say you've gone to the emergency room for something different. They can also be detected by physical examination when your doctor uh, palpates your abdomen and listens for a brewy, which is the sound made by the turbulent blood flow as a result of an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Pain is the most common symptom when the aneurysm expands or ruptures, and it often begins in the central part of the abdomen and radiates to the back or the flank. Other symptoms can occur depending on where the aneurysm is located and whether nearby structures are affected. So abdominal aortic aneurysms can remain asymptomatic, or you might have just minimal symptoms for years and not realize that this is what this could be. But a rapidly expanding one can cause severe and sudden onset of steady and worsening mid-abdominal and back or flank pain. 
As I said, the rupture of these can be lethal. It's associated with abdominal distension, a pulsating abdominal mass, and shock because of the massive blood loss that is concomitant with the rupture of an abdominal aortic aneurysm. This is a serious health condition. This is a surgical emergency. Once an aneurysm ruptures, 50% of those with the aneurysm die before they reach the hospital. The longer it takes to get to the operating room, the higher the mortality. The most common cause of aortic aneurysms is, as I said, arteriosclerosis. What is that? Well, you've probably heard the term hardening of the arteries. We throw these terms around back and forth, and we don't realize that they are significant medical conditions. A majority of aortic aneurysms are caused by arteriosclerosis. The arteriosclerosis weakens the aortic wall, and the increased pressure of the blood that is being pumped through the aorta causes weakness of the inner layer of the aortic wall. The aortic wall has three layers to it. I'm not going to give them to you. (laughs) Tunica adventitia, tunica media, and tunica intima. All right, I gave them to you. There'll be a test later on in the show. And these layers add strength to the aorta as well as the elasticity. And that is how you're able to tolerate changes in your blood pressure. But chronically increased blood pressure causes the media layer to break down and lead to continuous slow dilatation of the aorta. So it dilates. It gets bigger because it's weaker. And, And that's why it's so important to have your blood pressure in check under 130 over 90. Okay. Smoking is a major cause of aortic aneurysm, and studies have shown that the rate of aortic aneurysm has fallen at the same rate as population smoking rates, which is, which is great, and that actually affirms the fact that smoking is a contributing factor. There are other causes of aortic aneurysms. There is genetic or hereditary. There can be genetic disease, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and Marfan syndrome are two connective tissue diseases that are associated with the development of aortic aneurysm. There can be post-trauma injury. Trauma can injure, injure the aortic wall and cause immediate damage or may cause an area of weakness that will form or develop an aneurysm over time. You can also get a mycotic or fungal infection, and that may be associated with immunodeficiency and uh, or IV drug use, syphilis, and heart valve surgery. All are um, they can get infections that may actually lead to an, a triple A or abdominal aortic aneurysm. And most uh, most of them are shaped like a spindle, and they there's a with widening around the circumference of of the aorta. So. These triple A's tend to occur in white males over the age of 60, so be careful, live your life well, and don't smoke, and make sure your blood pressure is good. And in the United States, these aneurysms occur in up to 3% of the population, and they start to form at about age 50 and then peak at age 80. And women are less likely to have aneurysms than men, and African Americans are less likely to have aneurysms than Caucasian men. There's certainly a genetic uh, component as well. Um, So as I said, cigarette smoking, high blood pressure, elevated blood cholesterol levels, and diabetes mellitus, or diabetes as you know it, um, are are all risk factors for developing a AAA or abdominal aortic aneurysm. Physical exam can be the initial way the diagnosis is made. X-rays, as I said, ultrasounds, that type of thing. The AAAs gradually expand over time, and the larger your aneurysm is, the greater the risk of rupture and death. 
Small aneurysms can be observed, so they can be watchful waiting periods, and then you may actually have to have repeated ultrasounds or other types of imaging CT scans over a time, but you'll want to talk to your doctor about this. So there's guidelines for following an aneurysm, and the, the normal aorta measures about 1.7 centimeters in a male and 1.5 in a female. Aneurysms that are found incidentally that are less than three centimeters do not need to be reevaluated or followed. But aneurysms measuring three to four centimeters should be rechecked by ultrasound annually to monitor for potential enlargement and dilatation. And aneurysms measuring 4.0 to 4.5 centimeters should be monitored every six months by ultrasound. And those that are greater than 4.5 centimeters should be evaluated by a surgeon for potential repair. That's why it's good to read your medical records. Ask for your chart. It's your information. You have a freedom. You have a right to that information. Uh, and you, there's a uh, Freedom of Information Act. You may have to request this information in in writing to your doctor or to the hospital. But it's important that you know the size of your abdominal aortic aneurysm. Everyone is different, and the decision to repair is really depends on the size of the aneurysm, the age of the patient, any other underlying medical conditions. What puts you at greater risk for potential surgical complications? There, are, there We have two pro- approaches to repair these. Uh, the one is the traditional approach. It's a large incision made in the abdomen, and the aortic aneurysm is identified and resected. And the missing piece of the aorta is replaced with a graft. And then the second ap- approach is an endovascular graft. So the treatment approach needs to be tailor-made for you, and it very much depends on the location, the size, the shape of the aneurysm, who you are, what your life has been, who you are, meaning how healthy are you, not uh, if you are have more money or anything like that. Forget it. Um, no, but if you're, you know... It's actually who you are in terms of your health. So how healthy are you? And and what kind, you know, can we watchfully wait this or do we or do we have to do surgery? Anyway, you're all different. That's what makes you all so beautiful. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Lovely to be here with you. It's always my pleasure to talk about health with you. One of the subjects that I'm incredibly passionate about Uh, And all forms of health, mental, physical, emotional, and even sexual. But right now we're going to talk about heart health. Earlier in the program, we talked to a gentleman who had developed an app, Pause Plus One, for the HIV community to help them to forge friendships and meet other people. Well, that intrigued me because I had read an article in the New York Times uh, a few days ago about what barbershops can teach about delivering health care. And the reason an experiment to reduce high blood pressure in a high-risk population succeeded was because it adapted the approach to encourage trust. Heart disease is the most common killer of men and women in the United States, and high blood pressure is one of the greatest risk factors for heart disease. We, we've known this. We know this. What we don't realize, and but we're just talking about men here, but heart disease is the number one killer of women as well. But we have a difficult time getting patients to comply with recommendations on how to lower their blood pressure and also taking and being compliant with medications. So a recent study showed that the means of communication may be as important as the message itself, and it might even be more important. It also suggested, according to this particular study, that healthcare need not take place in a doctor's office. You've heard of that white coat syndrome or be provided by a physician to be effective. So in this particular study, it took 
place in a barbershop, which is an institution that has long played a significant social, economic, and cultural role in the African-American life. It's a setting that fosters both confidentiality and camaraderie. And you know what? It's like you're going to see an old friend. And it seemed like a good place to try to reach men to talk about hypertension. Years ago, researchers ran an experiment where they trained barbers to check blood pressure and refer people with high levels to physician. One group received this intervention. A control group received pamphlets handed out by barbers. Blood pressure values were only minimally improved in the intervention group. This was thought to be because even when patients were referred to primary care physicians, those doctors rarely treated their condition appropriately. So the more recent study went that much further. It removed physicians almost entirely from the process. The control group consisted of barbers who encouraged lifestyle modification like exercise and diet, or it referred they referred customers, their customers, or ultimately patients, with high blood pressure to physicians. So in the intervention group, the barbers screened the patients, and then they sent them off to pharmacists who met with the customers in the barber shops. Okay, so we're actually changing the venue. We are shaking it up, and I like that. They treated patients with medications and lifestyle changes according to specific protocols, and then they updated the physicians on what they had done. And the results were phenomenal, unbelievable. Six months into the trial, the systolic blood pressure, which is the higher of the two blood pressure measures, so you might hear 120 over 80, so the 120 number, in the control group had, in the control group had dropped about 9 millimeters of mercury to 145.4, still high. In the, en- in the intervention group, though, blood pressure had dropped 27 millimeters of mercury to 125.8, which is really close to normal. You know, if you can drop somebody's blood pressure by 27 millimeters of mercury, I mean, if, if they're like borderline even, and they're, you know, kind of 135, and you're going to bring them down to, you know, let me do my math here, 105, uh, 107, 102, whatever it is, um, you know, you're, you're doing tremendous work. You're really reducing the pressure on the blood vessels and on the heart. So if we define the goal of blood pressure management to be less than 130 over 80, more than 63% of the intervention group achieved it compared with less than 12% of the control group. And this is significant. It gets even better. The rate of cohort retention, which is measuring how many of the patients remain plugged into the study and care throughout the entire process, was get this. 95%. That is so rare, so unusual. Believe you me, I've done a lot of research studies and the dropout rate is significantly higher than that. The barbershop customers were part of a population that is typically or you know traditionally difficult to reach. More than half of the participants lived in households that earned less than $50,000 a year and more than 40% in households earning less than $25,000 a year. On average, they were overweight or many were obese. 33% smoked cigarettes and more than 20% had diabetes. Yet the improvement in blood pressure was more than three times that of the average of previous pharmacist-based interventions seeking to improve blood pressure. And many of those had focused on populations that were much easier to reach. This is a significant study. This is something that we need to do further research into, further work in this, uh, and 
and maybe even a physician becomes involved uh, to head this versus deliver the care, if that makes any sense, so they can oversee it. So it's still a role for our physicians. But one reason this particular trial succeeded or this failed is because it adapted its intervention to overcome the barriers, and that's what's critical here. And and you know what? There's a lot of ego in healthcare and the delivery of healthcare. And so when you remove the ego out of any situation, sometimes you get a better outcome. When barbers weren't consistently screening customers by measuring their blood pressure, pharmacists stepped in to do that. When labs slowed things down, pharmacists brought measuring tests into the barber shops. The larger implications of the study cannot be ignored. Getting barbers involved meant health messages came from trusted members of the community. Now, there's something to be said for a trusted healthcare professional. I hope I'm one. But trusted members of the community may have a lot more power than I do or a physician. Locating the intervention in a barbershop in this particular study meant patients could receive care without inconvenience with peer support. They're not sitting in a doctor's office waiting forever. Using pharmacists meant that the care could be delivered more efficiently. And since we broadened the scope of pharmacists in this country, in Canada, I think we could do this study here, replicate this study. Of course, the study is limited by the usual types of questions. Who will pay for this in the real world? Who would do the training necessary to scale, necessary to scale this? And who is ultimately responsible? But you know what? With a little creativity, a little conversation, we could do this. Um, you know, these concerns reflect those shortcomings of how our current healthcare system works, not those of the study. And, and so we really have to, you know, look at creative ideas like this. People are living longer. People are not getting the health care that they need. They're not taking certain things seriously. Um, you know, there's, a, there's retail clinics, retail health clinics, but, you know, a lot of doctors are opposed to them. You know, what is the right way? I think this is a great idea. I think we can build on this. I think uh, trust is critical in any relationship. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I'm very grateful to have this program. That's the truth. I feel extremely fortunate, very lucky. I worked hard to get here, I have to say. But you know what? Sometimes it's not just hard work that lands you up in a place that you love. And I always... Uh, remind myself of, I mean, I don't even have to remind myself, but I am always cognizant of the fact that I love doing this show. I am passionate about healthcare. I am passionate about delivering up-to-date, accurate, evidence-based information. I'm really grateful to have this work uh, that I do and to come to you every Sunday evening to talk about health. And, you know, gratitude is something that I think has gone missing in our world and especially with our children. You know, we we don't we don't do things on our own in life quite often. And if you're fortunate, you have somebody who can guide you, who can help you and and if you're really fortunate, you have a lot of people. And I've been one of those fortunate people. I also happen to wear my heart on my sleeve and if I have a problem, you know what? I'm going to get some help <laughs> with it. And I have a really close friend who is, as I call her, my, my guru, my philosopher, my mentor, my mindfulness meditator on steroids. And, you know, honestly, 
Uh, she has counseled me. I have gone to her with lots of different issues that I have had in my life, especially over the last few years. Uh, you know, anything from that's related to my work or, um, and I do a lot of different contracts. Um, I've had no issues here. I love it here. That's the truth. Um, but other, you know, in my daily work during the week, I know a lot of you think that I do this full time, but I don't. Um, because you've told me you think I do this full time, or if I have a meeting with you, people are like, did you just come over from the radio station? I'm like, no, I just came from the federal corrections <laughs> building, or I came from my clinical practice. So um, work, I'm very grateful to have as well. But of course, you're working with so many people, and you can have issues. And, and of course, you know, with, with a family, there can be issues as well. And, and so this is somebody that I can go to, and I can trust, and I can tell her anything. And I know it is going nowhere. And even sometimes I have to say to her, Please don't tell anybody this. And you know what? That's that that's that stigma. You know, we're all victims of it. That stigma that is just like, if anyone knew I had this problem, you know, what would they think of me? Um, so we worry about what other people think. But when you have a confident, you have somebody like that, you know, it's, you know, you don't want to lose them. And I certainly would not be where I am today without her and a number of other people. But in particular, I go to her for any personal issues or, or professional issues. And she's really helped me. She's really guided me. And so I, you know, to demonstrate my gratitude, I was driving by a garden shop and I saw this topiary tree. It was five hearts. And I thought, that's her. She's whimsical as well. And so I went and I bought it and I tossed it in my SUV, put the seats down to get it in there and dropped it off, you know, in the, in the evening, just pop, plopped it in her garden. And honestly, there was a spot there was a spot for it in her garden. And I, um, you know, I, I wanted her to know just how heartfelt my gratitude was and just how much heart I know she had given to me. And I really believe this is one of the issues in the world today. We don't have enough gratitude. And are we teaching our children to have gratitude? Or because there are some strategies around parenting these days, uh, to give them everything and make them be entitled, you know, that's what we're potentially raising. Um, you know, they, they may not be grateful for something they have until they lose it. And you lose out on a lot of joy when you're not grateful in the moment. And, you know, it, it takes mindfulness. It takes stopping and thinking, what am I grateful for? Perhaps my spouse, my children, my home, my the food on my table, uh, my car, the, uh, you know, and, and the, the, my relationships, more importantly, you know, nothing that, I mean, you know, it, we're very fortunate if you have things like that, if you have a job and you know what, you, I knew somebody, a patient of mine and, and I was warning him and saying, you're going to lose your job. I'm not going to lose my job. He had absolutely no gratitude around the job that he had, but the behaviors that he was engaging in, um, he was, he was drinking and using cocaine and he was smoking pot and he was being incredibly irresponsible. And of course he was having anxiety and that's why he came to see me and he didn't believe me. And then of course he lost his job, you know, but it's the person with the troubles that um, is the last person to know or, or even consider that there might be any consequences. So gratitude is an attitude. And like most characteristics, it can take time to deliver. They, kids have an innate desire to be good, especially when they're around eight years old. They want to help. That's really the time that they'll help with the table setting and that kind of thing. Um, but they also have this sort of the world is all about me. 
and, and entitlement, as I said, is not a pretty thing, and it can become the norm if it's not addressed. And it is, you know, it's a it's a tough way to be, especially if you're uh, living in brat mode for a long time. It's difficult on you, and it's difficult on the people around you. So you want to start that gratitude attitude early and repeat that mantra often. And so there's many ways to encourage appreciation and teach the power of gratitude. And it's more than just saying, oh, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky that I live on the ocean or I'm so lucky that I have live in a mansion or, or whatever. And, and that's not, you know, all, the only things that you can be grateful for. I mean, just really the simplest things like I am so grateful that I can put one foot in front of the other, that I can walk. You know, we hear people complaining about their shoes. Uh, there's an old adage, I complained about my shoes until I saw a man who had no feet. And so it's really, you know, it's, it, this is a tough one. This is tough to teach this. And um, you, we want to make gratitude a daily conversation. So dinner time is a great time to do that. Go around the table, um, you know, and take turns sharing what you're most thankful for that day. You know, and it always can't be a, a material good. You want to help your kids to get creative and think outside of the box around their gratitude. And this really needs to start young. Um, you know, practice goodwill as well. Teaching children to help others is a key ingredient to happiness. And small acts of goodwill can teach big lessons. And so being helpful is easy on a daily basis. You can donate your old toys or clothes. You can open the door for somebody. Chivalry is not dead, let me tell you. Uh, you know, you can help a neighbor out, bring their trash in, um, take the dog for a walk. There are many things that one can do, uh, you know, as young children put their toys away uh, that that actually helps to solidify that gratitude attitude. You want to assign chores or small tasks to your children. I see this a lot. Women doing everything. They're perfectionists. They're great housekeepers. They have to have the beds made properly. The kids can't do it. And they really don't want to wear their children out, especially if they had a tough upbringing, especially if they had an upbringing where they were the the maids in the house. And so they feel that they don't want their children to have to live that way. So therefore they do everything for them. But you know what? Let your kids make their own bed. You know, that's a, that's a wonderful thing in life is every day make your bed because no matter what kind of day you had, when you come home, you enter a made bed, life is a whole lot easier. Believe you me. Um, you, you, know, you can teach kids to wipe the counter. I'm a fabulous counter wiper. <laughs> I love that job. Who's to say kids aren't going to love that job? They, they can love it as well. Uh, even though a child may not do a job perfectly, don't take it away from them because then they'll think, oh, I can't do this well, as well as my mom can, so therefore I'm not going to do it. Um, boys and girls teach them and, and they teach them all to do chores. They're not uh, sex sp- specific. And also, I really think we've gone away from the thank you card. Saying thank you can become a reflexive part of a child's vocabulary. And, you know, that when it's a reflexive part, they tend to demonstrate that they're lo- they don't actually have true gratitude. So it's nice to write thank you notes and deliver them in person. And and that might also inspire more thoughtful thanks. And people love to get a note, especially in the digital world today. And, and lastly, be a model of gratitude yourself. Don't compare yourself to the Joneses. Don't compare yourself to the neighbors or to your sisters or your brothers that they have more, their lives are better. There's not a house that you can go past where you couldn't lift the roof off and there would be troubles at some point in that 
family's life. So you want to make sure that your child witnesses firsthand gratitude and appreciation among you and the people you hang around with and the, your their aunts and their uncles. And there's nothing as powerful as being a great role model. And you know what? Nobody is perfect. And every now and again, we can slip and you know fall back. Teaching children gratitude takes time, but be patient. Keep teaching. Be kind yourself and keep setting that great example. Believe you me, it will make a great difference. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here hosting this program for you. I want to talk, I, I am often talking about losing weight and staying in shape and getting healthy. And I hear lots of people in my clinical practice, they, they present and they're like, um, you know, I, I don't like my body. I want to lose weight. I don't exercise enough. And they really focus on the exercise. I don't know about you, but exercise makes me hungry. And to be honest with you, the more, and I exercise, but the more, and the more I do, like I've been doing these MET classes lately, muscle endurance training, and man, am I hungry. Uh, in addition to my swimming and walking the dog. And you know what? It's too much. So I can't do those three day, three times a week because I, I literally ate an entire box of donuts the other day and there were like a dozen in them. I just kept going back for another quarter <laughs> of the donut until they were all gone. No, I didn't have all 12 of them. I probably had eight, but that's too many. I'll tell you, eight donuts is far too many. I don't care how good they are. And then you just feel awful afterward. And so you negate any exercise that um, that the, you, that you engaged in. So I, I want to give you some solutions and I'd like to give some solutions and um, and, and I want to provide you some information because this might speak to you, the Nordic diet. Experts say the Nordic diet is the healthiest way to eat. So you already know the basics of healthy eating. It's pretty simple. Fill your plate with low glycemic index fruits, vegetables, whole grains, lean protein, no sugar, no sweets, no donuts. But you also know that best diets aren't really diets, but it's actually changing your lifestyle. And that's what I say to people. This isn't a diet. This is actually how you're going to live. This is the way you live. And you you will become a walking, talking picture of health. And one of the most famous ones out there, there's tons of them. There's Weight Watchers, there's Mediterranean. Um, and, you know, the Mediterranean is mainly plant-based foods as well as some lean proteins like fish and chicken. But the Nordic diet has made its way. Summer's fast approaching. And you know what? This can be the way to lose those extra pounds. So in short, it's a plant-based way of eating. And the emphasis is on fatty fish, salmon, mackerel, herring. Hmm, all my favorites. Not really. Berries, root vegetables, potatoes or carrots, for example. Those will fill you up. Nuts, legumes, low-fat dairy, and whole grains. It also means cutting out the processed foods. Oh, no. Chips and candy and most high-fat meats like sausage or bacon. It's based on the cuisine in Nordic countries like Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, and Iceland. And it's been adapted from the Baltic Sea Diet Pyramid. Uh, so this is a, an important um, you know, diet to know because you need the choice. You need to work with what works for you. So it's similar to an uber-healthy Mediterranean diet, but there's one key difference. While the Mediterranean diet focuses on olive oil, the Nordic diet actually promotes rapeseed oil, uh, in other words, canola oil, as we may know it as. Canola oil can help to reduce bad LDL cholesterol and your risk of heart disease and stroke. And it may be better at reducing bad cholesterol and improving heart health. So the Nordic style of eating has serious heart health perks. And a major review by the World Health Organization found that both Mediterranean and Nordic diets reduce risks of cancer, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. And it can also contribute to weight loss. And there was a study out of University of Eastern Finland that 
found that the diet reduced the expression of genes associated with inflammation. You hear that quite a bit. And that is thought to contribute to many chronic health issues and play a role in obesity and also play a role in pain and mobility and many other issues. So whole grains can help with weight management, but it's also what you're ditching that can keep you slim. And so I really suggest processed foods. They're hyper palatable. They are fantastic. You love them. Good for emotional eating, but that's it. They result in overeating and weight gain. Once you start one, I started that one donut. I was just, I mean, I was into the box big time. Going Nordic is also good for Mother Nature. So eating more of a plant-based diet is better for the environment because fewer natural resources are used to produce food. So those of you interested in climate change, the Nordic diet is for you. There's far less greenhouse gas emissions. And there's a focus in the Nordic diet on whole grains, fruits, vegetables, and high in fiber. And so that'll help you with your little Mother Nature uh, actually have uh, some normal, healthy bowel movement. So you don't have to overhaul your diet or deprive yourself to go Nordic. Start by picking up some staples for your fridge. Stock up on beautiful fruits and berries and root vegetables, carrots, turnip, potatoes, beets, parsnip. Your refrigerator will look gorgeous with broccoli, spinach, legumes, oats, barley, rye, wheat, canola oil, fish, eggs, nuts, and seeds. I just get I totally get off when my refrigerator looks like that. Meals like oatmeal with walnuts and apples, yogurt with strawberries or salmon and lentil, bok choy are all really good options. And these fill you up. So if you're a big meat eater, committing to one plant-based meal a day is a good place to begin. You don't have to start, you don't have to dive in 100%. They eat a lot of bison there, which is a surprisingly lean red meat. Not for me. But you know what? It's important to plan out your 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 diet, your day, what you're going to eat. Get excited about it. Look at the foods. You know, we're visual people. Honestly, you can, it's it's orgasmic to open up your refrigerator and see the beautiful green leafy vegetables, the, the turnip, the beets, the potatoes, and, you know, it's all fresh and beautiful. And, and a bonus is if you can, you know, take a little mother nature to your own backyard and grow your own vegetables. A lot of these things can be grown themselves. And and also those berries that were ha- coming upon summertime in Canada, which is like a few minutes. And so, you know, there's lots of berries out there, blueberries, raspberries, blackberries. Uh, you can pick some in, in the uh, doing some hikes around your areas, I'm certain. Or you can there's some roadside markets that are beautiful to stop at. And why not give business to these people? You can also... Um, go to, um, you know, Sunday markets, uh, Saturday afternoon flea markets often have beautiful fruits and vegetables. But you know what? Really get off on it. Get off on this diet so you can get off later. <laughs> because if you feel better about your body, you are going to actually have more desire to engage in sex, to in- be intimate with your partner. That is the glue in a relationship. That is the tie that binds, that intimacy, that connection, that vulnerability, that caressing, that touching, that loving, that being in the moment, that, you know, wanting to be there and wanting, you know, more and different and exploration of each other's bodies because you know what? You feel great about your body and you feel great about your body when it's healthy and you are fueling it with healthy choices, healthy fruits and vegetables. And you're, you are actually getting empowered and being a more powerful person, being lean and, uh, you know, able to walk. I had a 40 year old woman in my clinical practice the other day and, and she said, you know, she was, she was overweight and she kind of said in her teens, she gained 10 pounds in her twenties, she gained 20 pounds in her thirties, she gained 30 pounds. And, and in her forties, you know, she was set to gain, like she'd already gained 20 pounds last year. 
And so she's looking at, you know, she's going to be 100 pounds overweight before you know it. And I said, you know, the big thing, you're 40 now, but when you're 60 or 70, you're going to have mobility issues and pain issues and other issues, you know, in terms of uh, skin issues, because you can actually get irritation and rawness, especially in the hot summer. And and so it's really looking ahead and it's actually preparing and saying, you know what, enough is enough. And the first thing you have to do, you got to get on a scale. So many people don't get on the scale, but you got to get on the scale, not just today, but you have to get on the scale three or four or five times a week. You need to be accountable. And if you need a coach, that's fantastic. Get yourself a coach or just report into somebody, somebody who cares. Um, and somebody who is not going, or you feel is not going to judge you. I mean, you can deal with this with your doctor. You can have a 10 minute visit with your doctor. You can review because anytime you change your lifestyle in terms of what you're putting in your mouth, you want to talk to your doctor. Well, not all the time, but especially around your nutrition, you want to talk to your doctor about it. Make sure it's healthy for you, given the conditions that you have, given the medications that you might be taking. Who knows? You might lower your blood pressure so much that you don't need to take that antihypertensive anymore. You might start to feel so good about yourself and be able to exercise a little bit more that your endorphins are pulsing through your body and your neurotransmitters are better and your serotonin levels are up and you might be able to come off your antidepressant. So you know what? It, all of that is associated with better sexuality, better sexual desire, uh, blood flow, uh, which is associated with this as well, also um, is, incre- uh, is associated with sexual sensation. So you know what? There is There are no downsides to being the healthiest you possibly can be. Well, we are at the end of the program right now, and um, it's been a pleasure to be here with you. Tonight, I always enjoy uh, being here on this program, and uh, you know, I'm I I I speak on the radio, but I I write in a lot of other venues uh, on LinkedIn. So feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and Twitter at back the number two the bedroom, and you can go to my website back to the bedroom.ca, or you can head on over to Women's Health Initiative Network Win.ca because that is uh, my my um, not-for-profit organization to raise awareness about below-the-belt issues. Remember, when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you have been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.